For a lot of multiracial kids, we might grow up with families that prioritize one race or culture over the other. This could be due to a whole host of reasons. Sometimes they're social political, other times things just happen subconsciously. Speaking as a biracial person, this can lead to a sort of disconnect or feelings of inadequacy about one or more of our cultural identities. But what if we took things to the extreme? What happens to a multiracial person who grows up in a cult? A cult that deliberately isolates you and limits your access to the outside world. How does that shape your understanding of your culture and heritage? And it's important to note that we lived in this cult, so I didn't have the average experiences someone who was living in Japan would have, but more like what someone would experience if they were like uh, living in a house with a bunch of other people in Japan. Welcome to Asia is Not a Country, where we explore the unexpected twists and turns of being an Asian person living in a very complicated and not always compassionate world. I'm your host, Natalina Pereira, and not to get your hopes up, but I am incredibly excited about this episode. I've been working on this podcast for over two years, and I've been so blessed to have had friends and even people I didn't know trust me with their stories. I also think it's really funny how we make assumptions of people in our lives based on our own lived experiences. Me, for example, having grown up as a Chinese Indian person in Singapore with a father who wasn't on really good terms with his side of the family. My family then grew up in a really Chinese way. By that, I mean my mom cooked a lot of Chinese food. We learned Mandarin in school. We spoke it with my mom and her family. And we celebrated Chinese or the Lunar New Year. In contrast, when my paternal grandmother passed away when I was seven, I lost my biggest cultural anchor on the Indian side of my family. I stopped watching the 4 p.m. Bollywood and Kollywood movies on the weekend. No one bought me saris anymore. And the afternoon chai experience, which people sometimes also call chai, that ended too. So when I met Michelle a few years ago in a professional setting and we really bonded over our love for food, Japanese food to be exact, and I found out that she had the same feelings of disconnect with her Japanese culture, I just assume it was a similar situation because her father's European, her mom's Japanese, she grew up in Europe, so it would be easier to just live more European. And boy, was I wrong. When we met to talk about this interview, she sat me down and told me that before we began, I needed to know something. She grew up in a cult. And I was shocked. First, because I didn't know, and secondly... Because I was also surprised at how quick I was to project my own experience onto her. You know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about Asia not being a monolith and how everyone has their own experiences of growing up and being Asian. And this interaction or revelation about Michelle was a really necessary reminder for me personally. And also because there's just so much to talk to Michelle about we decided to break this interview into two episodes. So in this episode, we'll be diving into her childhood, family, and what growing up in a cult was like. 
And in the second episode, I really wanted to talk to Michelle about how she has tried to reconnect with her Japanese heritage. Also, I want to add that Michelle is not her real name. Because of the stigma that comes with having been in a cult, Michelle's parents are still quite worried about how people and even their employers might react if they knew about their history. To respect their wishes, Michelle wanted to use an alias. And I remember how she reacted when I first asked her to be on this podcast. I think it was something like, this is so nice of you to think of me, but I'm not really Asian enough yeah. to, to qualify as to be someone to talk about this. Yeah, I think I told you then, and I still feel it today. Whenever I think about the opportunity I have to interview you, it makes me kind of sad that that was your response. Because I was like, oh, Michelle, like, <laughs> of course you're Asian enough. And that is a really great way to open you know, this interview to also let listeners know why you feel that way. Yeah. So I think it'll be really helpful to hear about your family and, and your upbringing. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's kind of complicated, but I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. My grandfather joined a religious cult sometime in the 60s. And I think he met them in Hawaii. And then he went to Japan because that was kind of their thing to spread the religion or the idea of their religion throughout the world. It used to be called the Children of God, and then they got some like bad PR yep. for very a very good reason. It was a very open cult in regards to sex. The basis of it was like evangelic Christian, but with like, oh, sex is like God's gift, and we, they really encouraged it. But unfortunately, that meant that it was a really great place for people who were pedophiles to come and, you know, assault children. So it came out where people who were assaulted during their childhood, who had left the cult, were pressing charges or something. So after that, they really cracked down on that. And I didn't experience anything like that. My mom didn't experience anything like that. But my best friend, her mom, had experienced it. So it's not like it was a single case. It actually happened quite widespread. So they kind of changed their name and made some more rules to make it more um, correct, I guess. So they kind of rebranded into the Family International. And that's where he met my grandma, who was still studying at university, but dropped out. And then they just started popping out babies. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom was the third one. So she was born in Japan. And the thing is, when you're born into this cult, you don't really have connection with the outside world because it's kind of protected. Mm -hmm. So while they're trying to spread the religion outside... They're kind of also protecting the inside. So my mom didn't actually grow up learning Japanese. She can speak a little bit. How she communicates with her mom now is actually her mom will talk to her in Japanese and she'll reply in English. Mm -hmm. so my mom actually left Japan when she was 15 to go to Moscow because there was a home there for younger people from the cold from all over the world to become adults and, you know, experience new things. That's where she met my dad. So um, because they were never taught about contraception, mm -hmm. 
they had me like right away. <laughs> and actually, originally, my dad went back to Germany and my mom went back to Japan and then she realized she was pregnant. So she, <laughs> she wrote him a letter because back then there weren't like emails really widespreadly used. And um, so that's how my dad found out that he was going to be a dad. The thing is that they weren't really in a relationship. So it was kind of like a one night stand kind of thing. So my dad had to choose, okay, do I go and, and be with her and be a dad, even though we don't really have a relationship or just stay here in Germany where I am familiar with my life. And um, so my grandmother from my dad, um, she really convinced him to go and take care of me and to, like stand up to mm -hmm. the to <laughs> to the opportunity or the role that he has to be and i was born in japan in 1998 the funny thing is that i was born without a citizenship because oh for context my dad is german and swiss and so because my parents weren't married he couldn't pass on his citizenship to me and my mom wasn't japanese she was only american so through your grand through her father your yeah, grandfather through my grandfather okay. and so um she couldn't pass on the american passport either because she'd never lived in the u.s right. so there was this whole process for like three years where we had to apply for a japanese citizenship like all together me my mom and my my brother who was born <laughs> okay i should mention that <laughs> So me and my brother are like 13 months apart. <laughs> and um, those were the first years of my life. And I actually feel like I remember a lot mm. from that time. Just not really concrete memories, but more like feelings and maybe some like vague memories of food. And it's important to note that we lived in this cult. So I didn't have the average experiences someone who was living in Japan would have, but more like what someone would experience if they were like uh, living in a house with a bunch of other people in Japan. You eat the food that's in Japan and you go outside to the playground, you know, but you don't really interact that much with it. So while I feel like I had some input, I didn't really experience that much of my Japanese culture when I was a little kid. I wanted to also ask about your grandmother. So she was also already part of the cult when she met your grandfather or how did they meet? I think it's this classic way that they used to do it. It was called witnessing. So kind of spreading the religious material. Mm -hmm. And I guess my grandmother met my grandfather when he was witnessing at her campus. Uh -huh. I don't know the exact story because I didn't talk to my grandfather or my grandmother about it, but just my mom. Now thinking back on your childhood, what was it like growing up in a cult? Do you have any memories you, you could share about that time? Because mm -hmm. you mentioned already like food, you remember the food. And yeah certain aspects of living in Japan. Well, the food, uh, okay, well, living in Japan, I think the most thing I remember was um, natto. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is, do you know what natto is? Yeah, it's, like it's a, fermented soybean. It's like, yeah. yeah, and a lot of people who didn't grow up with it says it smells like stinky socks. Mm -hmm. But I love the smell and I, I love like the little mustard that goes on it. Oh, it just, it gives me that feeling of nostalgia and that's how I know that it was like something I ate. Mm. when I was a little kid, but I don't have like a concrete memory of eating it. I remember that I could speak Japanese. When my grandmother, she was taking care of me, I would talk with her, but I don't, 
I don't have any Japanese knowledge from that time. I can't speak it right now. So um, I feel kind of sad about that. Um, that, that. That part is like completely lost, but wasn't my my choice. In the cult, they didn't really value learning other languages besides English because as long as you had enough to be able to survive in the country that you were living in, you didn't really need to learn the language. You didn't go to school. I was homeschooled until I was 11. My first second language was Italian because we lived in Italy and my mom finally decided, oh, you're going to go to school. So... We went to school and then that was for one year and then we left after that. So what happened? So okay, the no, last thing I remember was, so you were two and you were still in Japan, yes. right? Okay, I should maybe and, explain that. <laughs> <laughs> so between like the years of two and going to Italy, uh, 10 or 11, yeah. what happened? You know, where were you? Okay, so after Japan, um, we went to Germany and where my dad and his family are from. My grandmother has a lot of children, and my dad is the oldest. Right now, she has 11 in total, and I actually have aunts and uncles who are my age or younger. So when we moved there, she was still making babies. <laughs> Just to put it nicely. <laughs> I think my grandmother really, she was really passionate about this religion and helping people, so she encouraged my dad and my mom to move to Zambia with two small children where there was a home from the, the family. Then my mom found out she was pregnant with my third brother and she flew back to Germany and my dad was taking care of me and my little brother for like a few months while she was giving birth and I think we caught like chicken pox and malaria almost at the same time. Ooh. So moral of the story, don't leave children with their, with their teenage father. <laughs> How old was your dad at that point Yeah, so my dad and my mom were the same age. They both had me when they were 17. So by that time, he was 19. Ooh. That's a lot. Yeah. Like going to a new country. I mean, I'm 24 now and I can't even imagine doing this. So I'm 32. I can't imagine <laughs> doing this. So at that point, you've lived in Japan, mm -hmm. in Germany, in Zambia. And I was like only three. How did a typical day in the cult look like? What were you doing? Did you interact with other children outside of the cult? Yeah. I, since I was only three, my, my most core memories came like afterwards. So after Zambia, we went back to Germany. So Germany was always our landing place and then after that we moved to Croatia and my parents split up then so my mom was a single mother of three children so in the home you normally have people like doing certain tasks and because she was a single mother she was really focused on raising us so she couldn't really do much in the home so people would not be happy with her living there and basically kick her out and she'd have to find somewhere else to live. That happened quite often. We went from Croatia to Ireland for like six months and then we couldn't stay there. So we went to Italy and that was like the final place that we lived. So I lived in Italy for like four years until we left the cult. So most of my memories about the cult are from Tuscany. I moved there when I was eight. We actually lived in a villa 
But because we're like 20 people or something, it wasn't like, oh, so much space, so much luxury. But it was a villa. But the guy who rented it to us, he had bought it and tried to like renovate it. And then something happened with his family and he didn't want to live there anymore. And then he tried to sell it and he couldn't. So he like rented it to us at a really good price. <laughs> it was kind of tradition or routine every day to have one hour of devotions which was reading the material that they produced in the cult and praying and reading Bible verses. And within the home, people had different responsibilities, like a schedule kind of. So this responsibility to give the children devotions rotated amongst other people. Some people were really happy to have devotions with, but others were like, oh, they're so boring. <laughs> and then after that, my mom was really intent on making sure that we got a good education because she only studied until she was 14. So she put a lot of effort and time into homeschooling us. People didn't really value education in the cult that much, but she spent a lot of time planning our daily tasks. So it was pretty organized and I knew what I had to do every day and we had all the subjects and we had like worksheets to do. That normally took until lunchtime. After lunch, we would have an hour of quiet time where this is like kind of nice, like a kind of siesta vibe. In the home, everyone would just nap for like an hour. And then after that, we were basically free to do whatever we wanted. And we went outside. Me and my brothers and the other children in the home, there was about seven of us in total from like two other families and we would all go outside and play games and make up stories. So that's actually something I really remember about growing up in the cold is just the stories that we came up with and imagined because we had the time and the space to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, when you talk about core memories growing up, that's one of mine. Running around with my brothers with like our little sticks and bows and arrows. And <laughs> a funny story is that we got into knife throwing. We would steal knives from the kitchen and just kind of. <laughs> well, look how far I can throw my knife. <laughs> um, yeah, and we would have dinner. And then in the evening, we also were free to do what we want. So I read a lot as a kid. The m books I was al allowed to read were very, like, you know, classical books. And so actually, I didn't read Harry Potter until I was like 15 or something because in the cult, they thought, like, oh, that's witchcraft. Um, yeah. And that was kind of like a, a day during the week. And then on the weekend, we would sometimes go on excursions, go to the park. Then sometimes we went witnessing. So what I mentioned before, like passing out re religious material. And um, I really hated this because I was a very shy child. And it involved us going up to strangers and like saying, this is for you. That was something I really didn't like to do because, you know, we couldn't speak the language. So it was kind of like communicating with our hands or something. And it was always very awkward. But afterwards, if they felt like it was a good day, they like treated us to ice cream or something. So mm -hmm. that's also a nice memory. Hmm. So during the week, you're kind of left to do your own thing. Your mom would set up exercises for you yeah. to like study. But where, where were the adults? Were yeah. they working? How did they bring money so there, in? No one had like jobs. Okay. There were people who would be charged with the cleaning, the cooking. We had people in the home that were our like dedicated fundraisers. And they did this thing called provisioning. When I think back on it, it's a little bit like fraud. 
<laughs> because they would go to um, this vegetable market or something and then they go to the seller and say, hey, we're doing this really amazing thing for children in Africa. Like, look at all the pictures and stuff. You can support them by giving us vegetables or milk or eggs or something. Okay. And then they would also go to like these department stores and then tell them the same thing. And they'd give us like some products that they can't sell or something or they have extra of. So we always had a lot of like one random product. So one of the things I really remember was these gluten-free plum cakes. <laughs> we, we loved that so much um we'd also do something like wrap presents in the department stores during christmas they called it the christmas push because that was like a very profitable time then and my mom would be like gone all day doing that there's probably someone staying home taking care of the kids and i would always like where's mom is she coming home kind of thing and they would be home like really late um so Everyone had a job in the home and like there was also someone in charge of the scheduling mm -hmm. and there's also like a, a leadership part of the home called the shepherds. <laughs> Sorry. It's so corny when I think about it. Um, because we were all Jesus' sheep. <laughs> yeah. I mean I see where I see where the idea came from. Yeah. But it's still, you know, when you grow up in it, you like you just accept it. Yeah, you don't course. question it. Yeah. Um, but now looking back, I'm like, that is really lame. They yeah. could have thought of something cooler than that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also why they don't want you to go to school, right? Because mm. that's where you learn to think for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it kind of dissolved around 2010. A lot of people just left, like max exodus. Mm -hmm. and so... Um, that's when I moved from Italy to the UK to live with my dad. But a bit more about how the cult, does, like, because yeah. you said it dissolved, so it kind of faded out. Because infrastructure-wise, you had all these houses, so people yeah. just had to move out of these yeah. places. Some people or? stayed a little bit longer yeah. to, like, get their feet off the ground. I just remember when my mom told us that we're going to live in the UK with my dad. And most people didn't really talk about it. Like, they didn't say, oh, this is so bad. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. Like, everybody just tried to keep calm and find a solution. But I'm sure, like, inside, they were really hard to come to terms with it. Not a lot of people talk about that moment. They talk about afterwards. They talk about before, but not, like, in the exact moment where everything came down. Um, in general, like, a lot of people just tried to find jobs. And they did whatever they could. So my dad's first job outside of the cold was answering phone calls at Deutsche Bank because he could speak German. But for my mom, it was a bit more difficult. It's also not just like the reality of not being able to like survive in the outside world, but the psychological effect of having to now question everything mm -hmm. that you've been taught. It's like an identity crisis, especially if you've been born into it and have never experienced anything else. My grandmother from my German side is still very religious, <laughs> but my dad is completely atheist. So there's that contrast there. If your world has been shaking up so much, you're like, okay, I have to completely reinvent myself and find out who I actually am. Did your parents prepare you? Like, did they say, because now you moved to the UK, they were like, oh, you don't do the no, witnessing no. thing. You don't do it anymore because that's not what people do. No, not at all. So you kind of had to figure it out for yourself. Yeah. 
when I moved from Italy to the UK to live with my dad. I had been going to Italian school for like one year already. So I was like, okay, it's going to be fine going to school in the UK. But it was so different. In Italy, they just accepted me. They're like, oh yeah, cool. This girl speaks English. Oh, I want to be her friend. Everyone was so nice to me and everyone like wanted to hang out with me. Even though I was really shy, people were always trying to like make an effort to make me feel welcome. It was a small town where I went to school, so that's probably why. But when I went to the UK, I was like, I was a little bit weird compared to all the other kids because obviously I hadn't been socialized properly. Where exactly in the UK were you in? It's a town called Milton Keynes and they kind of built it to be the suburbs of London so that you can commute between Milton Keynes and London. So it's a really like place to bring up a family. So lots of schools, um, not much to do. <laughs> Except, I don't know, drink, <laughs> go to the city center, shop. Yeah. yeah. And what was the experience like going to a big proper school with like people from from everywhere, from yeah. London as well, like super cosmopolitan yeah. in a way? It was very interesting. I felt like I learned a lot about other cultures. And then that was the first time where I was like, okay, I'm really different. Most of the people here had been born in Milton Keynes, lived in Milton Keynes their whole life, and then couldn't grasp the concept that I could be German and Swiss and Japanese and American all at once. And when you say it was really hard for people to grasp that you could be German, Swiss, <laughs> yeah. Japanese and American all at the same time, how did that play out? They kind of made fun of me for it. They're like, oh yeah, she thinks she's so different and so special. First of all, I don't really feel like I'm that different. I just have been to a lot of places because of my upbringing. I was kind of like dubbed the American girl, which was really weird for me because I had never been to the US. And this was just the accent that I grew up with. So I really didn't like that. And they would make fun of me for my American accent. I didn't really get any friends until like one or two years later after starting school. No one wanted to hang out with me. I actually ended up having to sit with my stepsister's friends at lunch. That's why I felt a bit frustrated. But then you also had people who had Indian or Pakistani descent because of, you know, colonialism. And a lot of people from Nigeria, from Ghana. And that was really cool. I think it was really nice to also, like, explore other cultures. That socialization was really important for me. If I had gotten out of the cold a little bit later, I think I would have turned out very different. So I'm happy I was able to leave during those formative years of my life. Also important to note, I never talked about living in a cult with anybody because my parents told me not to because people can like perceive you differently because of it. So I kind of had to lie a lot about my childhood. And I just didn't like discussing it, so people didn't push that much. But at the same time, you kind of have to like tell them why you were from all these different cultures. Mm -hmm. When you said that your parents told you not to talk about yeah. being in a cult, did they use the words the cult? Like, or did you no, know you you know no. what I mean? Because you didn't really know you were in a cult. You didn't. There was nothing wrong with your upbringing, right? But when we left that's when they kind of told us. Okay. Because it was like their realization as well. You know, it was kind of like a 
coming to the terms with the fact that they grew up in this community and were different and didn't have any education or qualifications. So they suffered a lot because of it. Like it's quite stigmatized to be someone who, especially one with, you know, uh, accusations of child molestation. Yeah. They didn't want to be associated with that. So they were so paranoid that if we talked about it, it would come back around and like their bosses would hear about it and, you know, they would get fired or something and they didn't want that. And I kind of internalized that and I don't tell people about it right off the bat. I wait until I get to know them a little bit more and I know that they're not going to judge me. Okay. I feel like if I tell people right away, they'll associate me as the cult girl. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment in your childhood or growing up when you realized that you were in a cult, when you realized that you were different from the kids that you saw in Italy and at the playground or the people that you were talking to when you did the witnessing? Do you have a, a moment in mind? Um... I think that, yeah, just like talking to the, the kids and being like, oh, where are you from? Uh, and in Italian, it's like, da dove sei, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm, <laughs> I don't know how to explain that. <laughs> Not only because I don't speak the language, but we always believed that we were on a mission to, you know, change the world and help people by, you know, teaching them about the religion. So we kind of also set the people in the cult apart from everyone else. So, We were the family and everyone else was the system. And you would call them, would call them systemites. Systemites? <laughs> Interesting. It's so corny. <laughs> Some people shouldn't be allowed to start cults. <laughs> <laughs> Just be a bit creative. <laughs> so did you go into all of that, like the witnessing with this kind of frame of work, like, oh, we're here to help yeah. people. We're yeah. maybe a bit better than most people. Yeah, exactly. We're trying to save you yeah. kind of mentality. But also not like judging them. Yeah. It's like, don't judge them for what they don't know mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so that's how we kind of saw ourselves. So it was not an inferiority complex. No. It was more like a yeah. superiority yeah. complex. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Interesting. I'm just wondering how that complex would have shifted the moment you went to school oh, in the yeah. UK, right? Because then you felt like something is different yeah. about me. Exactly. People don't know where to place me, how to place me. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I was super insecure. And I was like, so hyper aware of everything that I did because I didn't want to be perceived as weird. Mm. So I think this kind of like really impacted how I developed as a person to have a ton of self-awareness because I needed to adapt and fit in so that people wouldn't pick on me for being different. What would that look like? What do you mean by try to fit in? I think just the way I acted as well, like more in the cold, we were like very friendly and, you know, hugging people. And I remember, oh my God, first time I hugged my first friend, like it was on the first day she'd been in charge of showing me around. And then the second day I went and hugged her. I feel like British people are not so no. open to hugs. No, no, no. I'm not anymore. <laughs> I don't like hugging people. I mean, that I don't know. Yeah. Most people here in Germany, they like, if you meet someone, you give them a hug. And yeah. I, I really hate that. Mm. <laughs> But, you know, that's not how I was brought up either. So I think I kind of learned to like suppress that. Mm -hmm. Just living in the UK and trying to fit in. 
I want to take us a bit more into your relationship with your mother and also with the Japanese culture. Were you able to partake or celebrate your Japanese culture and heritage when you were growing up? Because I can really imagine that in a cult, the individual gets overshadowed by the community and the movement. That's the whole point yeah. of a cult, right? Um, how did your mother find ways of introducing Japanese mm-hmm. culture to you? I, f- I feel like my mom brought a little bit of Japan wherever she went. My mom is a very like sentimental person, like someone that hoards stuff. <laughs> she always had chopsticks that were like hand painted. And Ooh. we also had some for our hair, like cho- hair yeah, chopsticks. Yeah. She had a yukata. And one time when our relatives from Japan visited us, they brought me and my brothers. Well, my brothers got a jimbe, but uh, I got my first yukata and then she dressed me up and we took pictures and it was all really cute and fun. And I really enjoyed that. We also had these like children books. And I remember seeing like the onigiri and the nashi pears in Mm -hmm. the book. And it's a cartoon style, but I remember thinking like, oh, I really want to eat that. (laughs) I'm like, mom, can we make this? And she's like, no, we don't have the ingredients. Or we can't find nashi pears in Europe at that time. As I grew up and left the cult and we had the means to afford like buying ingredients, my mom really got into like cooking us Japanese food. And she made us oyakudon. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's called like mother and child because you, you have chicken with egg and rice. Aww. Um, <laughs> kind of cute. Kind of morbid too. I know. I mean, <laughs> also cute. I was like, apologize to all the vegans out there. <laughs> my relatives sent my mom like packages of food, like uh, osembes and ramen packs, and because it's quite light, we didn't get it often. Like maybe once a year or once every year, every other year. Um, but I remember we always like savored the osembe so like okay let's you know like split up the one rice cracker between four of us and let's really enjoy it so i think it was kind of like a a treat for us and something we really treasured yeah we also got for example like packages from my german grandmother and she sent us kinder chocolate but they were also treats but i really remember like the the memories of osembe's um, it's like really burned into my <laughs> into my mind. Yeah. And did your mom speak to you ja- Japanese or try to teach you little Japanese words or phrases? Yes. Yeah. Um, she used to say "aishimas," um, which means "I love you" all the time. Um, yeah, that was one thing she always said. But other, other than that, she didn't really speak Japanese to us. Mm. And how about your extended family back in Japan? Did she talk about them? Yeah. Tell you about who they were, what their heritage yeah. or background was. So I know, like, you know, for someone who has a big family, it seems like a, a lot to keep track of everybody, you know, and both sides, because my dad has lots of siblings and then my mom has lots of siblings because her dad remarried. So there's like <laughs> a lot, a lot of people. And I know all of their names. Um, and now that they're all having children, I know all their children's names. And then sometimes they would visit us, not every year, but... Um, especially in the cold, you didn't have a lot of like personal finances, but they would visit. And I remember when my my baba, my grandmother visited. She's a typical Japanese mother, grandmother, very like strict and not not very warm. Maybe some are warm, but she had a very like 
<laughs> strict relationship with my mom and therefore with us. When she visited us in Croatia, she went out into our garden and was picking the aphids off the rose bushes. <laughs> and then when we were being naughty and her punishment for us was to massage her hands and fingers. <laughs> She's like, here, you just do this. <laughs> like shake her finger. Yeah, That's a massage. Now you have to do this because <laughs> you've been naughty. <laughs> I don't know if this is typical, yeah. um, but my grandmother did this. But she also spoke to you Japanese or in in, in broken English. In broken English. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and did your mother or grandmother share stories with you about growing up in Japan or about their childhood? Uh, my mom, not so much. Like I've met my grandmother after moving from Japan, like maybe once. So didn't really talk to her as well. I was quite young last time I saw her. My mom, she grew up in like in Japan. They didn't just have these homes. They had like a combo, they called it, because it was huge, lots of people. So when you live in these homes, you don't really experience much of the outside. Mm-hmm. It's like your life revolves around this whole community working. So she didn't really talk much. She did tell me about visiting her relatives, so from my grandmother's family in Hokkaido. I actually met them as well. I met my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather before he died. And my great-grandmother, I think, is still alive, but she has Alzheimer's. So I don't know how she's doing, actually. But she did tell me about, like, going there and meeting them, but not much about growing up in Japan. My mom was... I would say obsessed with documenting everything. I have a memory of going and developing the pictures and looking at them. So we actually each have our own photo album that's like quite thick. And then every time I go back, I look at it and I go through it with my mom and she actually wrote little captions (laughs) for each picture. And they're so funny (laughs) because I'm just imagining my mom then like, oh, I need to write this about this. Um, For example, one of them was um, where I was sleeping with my hands folded and she's like, oh, she's already a little prayer fighter or something. Like, (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was really cute. So a lot of my memories from Japan are like I can remember them because of these pictures, which was I'm very grateful for my mom because if my dad was in charge of that, wouldn't have My dad has no pictures. <laughs> um, I think for most people, when they read about cults or just think about cults or watch something mm-hmm. on Netflix, the general assumption would be that it's difficult or not very easy to leave a cult. Was that the case for your family? Because you mentioned before that yeah. the cult kind of dissolved. Mm-hmm. But what was it like for you experiencing it or hearing your parents talk about it now? My dad was living in the UK before and he was doing a little bit better than my mom so he had like a better position in the cult so when it dissolved he actually got some money which I actually didn't know about someone told me so he didn't tell me that my mom had asked him if we could go live with him because there was no possible way she could have provided for us so it wasn't like oh now it's your turn to live with your dad she wouldn't have chosen that Um, it was more like I cannot take care of them and I want them to have a good education and staying in Italy is not going to be good for them. So I 
really want you to take care of them. And so my dad took us with my stepmom and my step-siblings. But that period of time where my mom was still in Italy with my stepdad, she wanted to become a teacher because I think like speaking English, it was easy to become an English teacher. But that didn't really work out in Italy. It's very hard to get a job in general, but like imagine without any qualifications. Mm -hmm. So she was really struggling. My stepdad got a job as a bike tour guide. It was a really cool job. He was like getting paid to like bike around with American tourists and eat good food with them and show them things. So that was how they kind of survived there. But my mom's goal was always to come to the UK to live with us. And eventually she did. When my dad moved to Abu Dhabi and my stepmom as well, she moved to the UK so that we could stay and finish school. Um, and now she's still there. <laughs> How long were you and your mom apart? Um, about four years. But you spoke to her during the time. Yeah, we called each yeah. other and she'd come to visit as well, like for birthdays and stuff. Just like my dad would visit us for birthdays when we were a kid. But um, yeah. I wish I saw her more often mm -hmm. or talked to her more often. But I think it was also good for our relationship because my mom was like a very strict mom, had lots of high expectations for us. I feel like that's because her mom had high expectations of her. So yeah, That sounds very Asian. That's sorry, like the most Asian, Asian thing. I'm a, I'm a very big perfectionist now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe one one last question about the cult because I mm -hmm. think there's so much more um, about your life that we love to explore do you see your time in the cult as making up a huge part of who you are like for me when I think about my childhood in Singapore that was so core to who I became mm -hmm. right and I wonder how it is for someone who grew up in a cult yeah yeah um I'd say that it doesn't make up a lot of who I am but the experience I made in the cult do. So being able to be outside for a majority of my childhood, mm. I really grew an active imagination. I read a lot. I feel like that really formed who I was as a very creative person because I had to create a lot of my world. A lot of the other kids relied on me to come up with the stories or the games. So I think that really helped me grow into a very creative person. Religion-wise, I don't believe in anything and I kind of don't like it as well mm -hmm. I accept that other people have that and need it but I don't the circumstances where I had to adapt really quickly to the change in my environment not just like leaving the cult but also moving around to all these different places I'm a very adaptable person now because of that it's kind of like having faced these these challenges I'm now a better person but I still had to struggle a lot as a kid. So I don't forget the struggles, but I do accept them that they were important for who I am now. And how do you feel about the cult now in terms of connecting to your Japanese culture? Do you feel like it took something away from you? I feel more mad that it did it for my mom <laughs> than mm -hmm. for me. Like in my formative years, I could learn more about my identity and other cultures, but my mom unfortunately couldn't. So she did what she could to pass her identity onto us afterwards. But I think she struggles a lot with that. In terms of how it took away from my identity, it's kind of that situation was you don't know what it's like. So 
um, don't know what you're missing yeah. kind of thing. Just so that the what we learned from her would have been different as well. Like also the language. I really wish I could speak Japanese yeah. because that would mean like going to Japan and exploring that culture would be a little bit easier. I really respect Michelle for having so much compassion and thoughtfulness for her parents and for her mom in particular. As children, we grew up thinking that our parents are infallible and maybe even more so in Asian cultures because we're taught never to question or talk back to our parents because they're always right. It would have been so easy for Michelle to blame her parents for not imparting her culture onto her or for not telling her more about her family history. I know I've done that before when I was upset about not being able to speak Malayalam or the fact that I don't know how to tie a sari still haunts me today. But sometimes that just happens, you know, things are out of our control. My parents chose to bring us up in a very Chinese way because that made socioeconomic sense in Chinese-majority Singapore. And Michelle's parents and family, they honestly had to put the cult first. That's the whole point of being in a cult. You place the needs of the ideology and the leader before everything else, which unfortunately meant that her Japanese heritage took a backseat. And while going out into the real world after spending so much of her childhood in seclusion was tough, I really admire Michelle so much for her kindness because it would be so easy to be resentful. Next week, you'll be hearing part two of this conversation where we talk about what Michelle has done to reconnect with her culture through food, language, and maybe even going back to Japan. Thank you for listening to Asia's Not a Country. Make sure to follow the show wherever you listen. Leave a review because that really helps us. You can also follow us on Instagram at asiasnotacountry.podcast. Share this with your friends, colleagues, and hey, maybe even in your family WhatsApp group. This episode is hosted and produced by me, Nathalina Pereira. My co-producers are Jasmine Bayomi and Ines Blasius. This episode was edited by Ines Blasius. Mixing and sound design by Dominic Etchley. Music Epidemic Sound. 